listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 uh, in just a moment. We're going to look at this passage and I'm actually, I think I'm going to add a text as well to our opening reading. Um, I didn't do this yesterday, last night, but uh, we're going to add a text as well from Revelation uh, 21. We'll look at that in just a moment. The title of my sermon, as you can see on the screen, is I am from the future. You'll see what that's all about in just a few moments. Uh, but, but what we're doing right now over these last few weeks and over the next few weeks is we're preparing, we're getting ready, we're gearing up for our big series that, that will be coming up. Uh, second Sunday, second weekend of September, we are going to begin as a church journeying through the Beatitudes, these eight prophetic statements that Jesus makes at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I can't wait for it. I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. I've been preparing for it. I think it's going to be very important for us as we begin our journey together with me as your pastor. I think this is going to be very important uh, as we look through the Beatitudes. And you'll see why as we, as we tackle that. Uh, but right now, as we're staring ahead at that time, we're getting ready. We're laying in some very important themes that I think will serve us well uh, when we do begin that series. So we're continuing in that vein. Uh, this morning. So let's go ahead and look at our, our central text here. Um, actually, let's, let's read Revelation 21. It will not be on the screen, uh, but there's a few verses here I just want to read, and I want you to have them in your minds. And then we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, a couple verses there that will be on the screen. And I'm going to read from the NRSV version uh, today. Uh, but John, the revelator, writes this, Revelation 21, verse, verse 1. We're going to read through uh, verse 5, the, the beginning of verse 5. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We, we sang about the church being the bride of Christ earlier. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Praise God. Now, let's look over at our central text today. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51. Now, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly 
for the kingdom of God. Let's pause and just pray, direct our hearts to the Lord. God, we just pause right now. And we prepare our hearts as best we can to hear what you have to say. I believe every person here is here by your design. Every person watching online or listening by some other means is tuning in by your design. There's something that you want to speak to us. There's something that you desire to change in our lives. And I pray that right now, each and every one of us is an act of worship, that we would humble ourselves consciously, set aside anything else that would try to compete for our attention, and consecrate this time to you. Speak to our hearts, we, we pray. Speak to the very core of our being and let your word bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this Joseph that's mentioned here, you know that we have numerous Josephs in the Bible, but this particular Joseph, we call him Joseph of Arimathea. He's the man who, if you were to read on just a few verses, he will take the body of Jesus off of the cross and bury him in his own tomb. And, and notice what it says about him at the very end of verse 51. Joseph, it says, was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. So apparently, according to the way Joseph understood it, the kingdom of God had not yet arrived, and he's waiting. But he's not just waiting in general fashion. He's waiting with a sense of expectation. There's an anticipation, a sense of immediacy to Joseph's waiting. Even though he can't pinpoint a precise day or time, Joseph just has this sense that what he's waiting for could maybe, possibly, perhaps happen pretty soon. I think we've all been in a spot like that in our lives where you're waiting for something and, and you're not just waiting, you just, you're kind of on the edge of your seat. You have this anticipation that whatever it is you're waiting for, it, it's, it's right around the corner. Maybe it's a marriage proposal or a job promotion or uh, the selling of a house. You don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but you just have this sense that it's, it's, it's about to happen. It's going to happen maybe very soon. That's where Joseph is. And Joseph looks around at the society and the world around him, the culture that he finds himself in, and he sees how broken it is. He sees what a mess humans have made of the world in his day and age. And and even the focal point of his hope, and, and many of the Jews' hope, this man, this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, as he's hanging lifeless on the cross, it just, it's on, on, the, on the exterior, on the surface, it looks hopeless. It looks like a time of despair. But in the midst of the despair, Joseph just has this sense. God's not going to leave it this way. Something's about to happen. God's going to step into this moment. I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to look like. But he's waiting expectantly for God to intervene. And he's going to, he's going to do something to set this back on course. And that's the longing in Joseph's heart. I, I think a lot of us share that longing today. We, we, we're exactly where Joseph was. You turn on the news today, you watch it for a few minutes, and it's like, man, what despair. <laughs> look at the world. Look how much brokenness and damage. I mean, I think you would agree with me that we would say it's beyond human repair. And we know that. We see it. But I think those of us, many of us in this room, what we also see and know is we, we know the character of our God. We know the intentions of our God. God is not going to leave the world the way it is. 
He's not going to watch the world burn itself down. He's not going to kick the world into the garbage can. No, 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 no. God has an end game in mind. He always has. We just read part of it in Revelation 21. There's going to come a point God's going to intervene. And God's going to set this thing right. God's going to take this broken, damaged world that's headed for destruction. God's going to step into human history. He's going to take everything that's broken. He's going to restore it. What what, uh, the apostle Peter in his sermon in the book of Acts, he calls the final restoration of all things. He's going to take what's broken. He's going to make it right. So yeah, things are broken. Things are damaged. Things are messed up. I think we see that. We live in this current world that's messed up. But there's also a world to come. There's also an age to come when everything's going to be made right. How many of you agree with me to say, I believe in the age to come? I believe there is an age to come. God will make it all right. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. He's going to make it right. So there's a current age, the one that's messed up, but then there's also the age to come when it'll all be made right. Now with that as our background, I want to now make what I believe is going to be a stunning announcement to you. In fact, many of you in this room, when I, when I make this announcement, you're just going to be utterly shocked. And I've been holding back. I've, I've been wrestling with whether or not I should make this announcement. And I just can't hold it back anymore. And I, I just have to tell you. Here's my announcement. I want you to know. I am from the future. I'm totally serious. I am from the future. I know that sounds like a cute line from a science fiction film. But it is theological fact. I am from the future. You see, I've been born again, which means I can see the kingdom of God. I can see into the age to come. In fact, I belong to the age to come. I am from the future. You know, one of Joseph's friends is a guy named Nicodemus. And what we learn in the Gospel of John is both Nicodemus and Joseph were members of what's called the Sanhedrin, the the, the Jewish high council, this governing body of, you could think of him as sort of like the supreme court of that culture, that day and age. And Joseph and Nicodemus were part of this governing body that, that basically orchestrated the arrest of Jesus in hopes that the Romans would execute him. They had planned it all out. Although Joseph and Nicodemus did not consent to this course of action. In fact, it's Joseph and Nicodemus who take it upon themselves at great personal risk to seek and receive permission to remove Jesus' body from the cross. Otherwise, Jesus would have been thrown on a garbage heap somewhere. But but they petitioned to have Jesus' body given over to them so that they can give him a dignified burial and honor Jesus that way because we are told both of them secretly were, in fact, disciples of Christ. But much earlier in uh, Nicodemus' journey, in fact, long before he became a believer, he heard reports of this young upstart prophet from Galilee, from Nazareth of all places, in fact. And people are flocking to this man up there and from all over the place, north, south, east, west. People are 
uh, there's just so much momentum around this new prophetic voice that God has sent to Israel. Perhaps God has sent. Maybe he's a false prophet. Who knows? There certainly was a lot of controversy around this man. And Nicodemus had heard enough to, to be intrigued. He was very interested in learning more, but, but he also knew with all of the controversy around this guy, I, I don't know if I want to get associated with him. I don't want, to, I don't want people to know that I'm interested So what happens, we learn in John 3, is that Nicodemus plans one night when everybody else is home, he's going to go privately seek Jesus. He's going to go try to find him. And in fact, that's what he does. He finds Jesus without anyone knowing. And Nicodemus is able to have a private conversation with this young prophet. And here's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, in other words, unless you're willing to take it from the top and start from scratch and rethink everything you know, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. It may be happening all around you, but you're not going to see it. Therefore, you're not going to walk in it. You're not going to engage in it. You will not participate. You must be born again. You must take it from the top if you're going to see the kingdom. Well, folks, I've been born again. And I see the kingdom of God. In fact, not only do I see the kingdom of God, but by faith and baptism in allegiance to Christ, I've entered into the kingdom of God. I've entered into the age to come. I say that unequivocally. I belong to the age to come, which we're going to get to in just a moment. I belong to the kingdom. Like the writer of Hebrews, I can, I can stand here and tell you, I have both tasted and seen the powers of the age to come. That's the age I belong to. Therefore, I am from the future. Now, as you're thinking of all of this, and maybe you're even thinking, where in the world did the elders find this guy? I want to show you a couple diagrams that I think are going to help you make sense of what I'm trying to teach you this morning. So the first diagram I want you to see on the screen, it'll also be in your bulletin if it's easier for you to see. This first diagram, you know, we're talking about the age to come. That's what we started talking about. Revelation 21, this beautiful prophetic vision of of a world that's remade under the authority of Christ and everything's going to be made right. Well, I want to show you The standard Jewish view, around the time of Jesus, this would be the standard Jewish view of how the age to come would unfold. So you'll see on the screen these two long horizontal lines, and they represent two different ages, or you might even say two different worlds. There is, first of all, the current age, the one that is plain and obvious and visible to all of us, the one that's broken. There's the current age, the one that is largely characterized by things like sin and death and evil and disease and destruction, the one that's broken. But the Jews also believed, they came to believe that there is an age to come. Somehow or another, God will intervene in human history and God is going to set everything right. Everything's going to be reconciled to the vision of God for human life and the world itself. This was called the age to come, or it was also called the kingdom of God. The reign of heaven 
when God's going to make everything right. So there's this current age, the one that's broken, but somewhere off in the future, the Jews believed, at least most of them believed, that there would be an age to come when everything's made right. And I want you to see on the diagram, notice there are two different events that for the Jewish people, for most of them, I should say, they believe these are the two events that would signal that the age to come has arrived and the current age has been done away with. The first event would have been the coming of the Messiah. Many of these Jewish people believe God is going to raise up what they call the Messiah, this anointed Savior King who's going to vanquish Israel. He's going to deliver Israel from its enemies. And once and for all, this Messiah figure is going to uh, restore the sovereign national identity of Israel. No more are these pagan cultures going to rule over them. Israel is going to be restored to sovereign status. And, and most of them also believe that when this Messiah comes to his throne, he's not just going to rule over Israel. He's going to rule over the whole world. And he's going to usher in what they called shalom. Everybody say shalom. shalom. The, the age of Peace, prosperity, wholeness under the reign of God. And everything's going to be made right. Sin is going to be eradicated from the earth. Evil's going to be eradicated. Even death itself is going to be done away with. And everything will be restored to God's original vision for the world. And this is how most of the Jews uh, believe things were going to unfold. And notice there was also a second event. And this one's very important to us today. There's a second event that they believed would be a sign of the age to come, and that is an event called the resurrection of the dead. Most Jews, not all, but most Jews at this time believed that at the end of the age, there's going to be, a, by the power of God, a final resurrection where all of the righteous dead who belong to God are going to be literally physically resurrected to life, and they will dwell with God in the age to come, in his eternal kingdom forever. All right, so this would have been the standard Jewish view, more or less, around the time of Jesus. But 2,000 years ago, something happened that for many of these folks totally changed the way they understood how these things would unfold. So I want to show you one more diagram on the screen. This is what would become the early Christian view, just a simple version of it. So I want you to notice the similarity here. There still are these two long horizontal lines. So we still have the same two ages. There is the current age, the one that's broken, defined by sin and death and destruction and all of those types of things where all this ugliness exists. This is the current age. But they also, like, like the, the common Jewish assumption, they believe there's also going to be an age to come when God's going to set everything right. It's going to get back on course and everything's going to be reconciled to the Father's vision for the world. So there's the current age, there's the age to come, but notice the difference. Unlike the common Jewish view in which the age to come and the current age butt up against one another, one neatly follows the other, in the early Christian view, what they began to see and understand is actually there's an overlap between these two ages. There's a period of time in which we will be living in, a, in the current age that's broken and damaged and still defined by sin and death, and yet at the same time, God's kingdom will already begin to be expanding in the world. It will be ushered in, and so there's this period of overlap where things are still broken, things are still damaged, and yet at the same time, God is 
already beginning to restore things and make things aligned to his vision. And the Christians believe that there's coming a time in the future. We don't know when. Could happen at any point. Could happen by the end of this sermon. Wouldn't it? That'd be great. But there's coming a time when the Messiah is going to return. And whenever that happens, the kingdom is going to be perfectly established in complete fulfillment. So you see the difference that there's going to be this overlap the Christians began to realize. But see, here's what changed it for them. There was one single event that completely caused them to change the way they understood these things. It was the resurrection of Jesus. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, it just blew apart their theological framework. Because prior to that, resurrection, as we saw in the previous diagram, resurrection was an event that was supposed to be in the future that would happen to all of God's people at once. And yet, when Jesus rose from the dead, they had, it just didn't fit in with their paradigm. This is why the disciples were legitimately shocked when Jesus rose from the dead. It, it just wasn't supposed to happen this way according to the way they understood things. They thought resurrection would happen in the future to everybody at once. And so they were shocked, even though Jesus tried to tell them. You remember that in the Gospels? Numerous times, Jesus is explaining to them, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to be raised. They, they just could not make sense of what he was trying to say because it didn't fit in their theological framework. So when Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were like, wait a second. What's happening here? This doesn't make sense. We thought resurrection would happen in the future to all of God's people at once, but apparently one has popped out early. <laughs> and so what would happen is that in the coming days, in the coming weeks, in the coming months and years, the apostles and the early Christians begin to realize this, and, and listen to this, very important. They begin to realize that the resurrection of Jesus, as you see on this diagram, the resurrection of Christ is the first act of new creation. It is the first event in the age to come. In other words, the age to come somehow, some way, has already arrived. And, it, and the kingdom of God is already here. It's in our midst, just like Jesus told us. And even now, God is beginning to make things right. And this kingdom is growing and expanding in the world. So you see, we're in this period of overlap. How many of you understand that? Things are still broken. Things are still messed up. Things are still not the way God would have things to be. But we're not just waiting into the future for things to be made right. No, 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 no. Even now, King Jesus is on the throne and things are slowly, gradually coming into alignment with his agenda. Amen. There's an overlap. This is what John tells us in uh, his first epistle, John chapter 1, verse 2, latter part of verse 8. He, he uses this metaphor. He says, the darkness is passing. Notice present tense. The darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. You know, I, I, uh, we moved here beginning of this month. We haven't even been in Los Angeles a month yet, and I have been hiking so many times. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I, I've been really enjoying the scenery. And, you know, you, you get up early in the morning, and you go on one of these trails that'll take you up these ridges, these mountains, and you find a nice little spot, you know, really early you know, there's a, there's a little ridge right there by our house with a trail that leads up this ridge. And, and I've been up there a few times now. 
And you go up there very early, like let's say it's 5.15, 5.20 in the morning, and you sit up, there's these benches, and you sit there, and you just watch the, the beautiful scene, and, and you've got uh, the valley of Burbank that Bur- Burbank's part of, and you just look out, and it's gorgeous. And, and there's even a view from the other side as well. And, but it's still dark outside at that time. In fact, you would say it's probably mostly dark. It's, it's nighttime. But if you look off into the eastern horizon on one of the adjacent ridges, you'll see a glow. Right around 5.25, 30, you'll see this glow begin to appear. And if you linger long enough, that glow gets brighter and brighter. And if you stay all morning, you'll see the sun come up over that ridge and fill the sky with light and the darkness is no more. This is what John sees in this passage. What he's telling us is this, folks, Yes, the world is a dark place. It's dark outside. There's so much darkness around us. But John says, what I want you to know is that this darkness has already had its peak. It's already had its day. It's already reached its pinnacle. This darkness that we are surrounded with, when you turn on the news and you see all of the darkness, you you need to understand, this darkness is passing away. Because the light of Christ has already begun to dawn. And gradually it gets brighter and brighter and pretty soon it's going to fill the entire sky. And so what John's going to tell us is because you and I know the future, because we know what's in store, because we know day is coming, then right now, because we understand nighttime is passing, let's put away the deeds of darkness and now under God's authority begin to live as children of light. So early in this sermon... I made this stunning announcement. I I know it stunned you. So many of you, your jaws were just hanging open. And I told you, I am from the future. And that is a true statement. But what's even more true is to say this. We are from the future. Those of us in this room, those of us watching, listening by other means, if you've been born again, to use Jesus' term, if you've devoted your life and committed yourself to Christ, guess what? We are from the future. I know that sounds like a smart aleck, clever thing to say, and it, it, it brings up all these back to the future references. Great Scott! <laughs> With a DeLorean and 88 miles an hour and 1.21 gigawatts. But I want you to understand it is absolutely true. We belong to a different age. We belong to the age to come. We are from the future. And what the New Testament is trying to teach us over and over and over again is that because we belong to the future, because that's our home, then right now in this current age, we need to be living our lives by the transformative power of God's Spirit. Let me hasten to add that. We are to be growing and becoming people whose lives reflect what the world will be like when everything's made right. And in that way, we become a witness to the culture around us where the world is able to look at Village Church and say, oh, that's what it's going to look like. That's where God's going to bring this thing. That's where this thing is headed. That's what human relationships are going to be like in the age to come. I want to be a part of that. And so, and so to the degree that that is true of us, then, then what happens is we become a prophetic people. Now, what do I mean by that term, prophetic people? 
Well, here's what I don't mean by that. When I say we're a prophetic people, what I absolutely, positively do not mean is that we are to go around like a band of psychics trying to predict future geopolitical events and the outcomes of various elections. I don't know about you, I've had enough of that. God help us. That is not what I mean when I say we are a prophetic people. When I say we are a prophetic people, what I mean is we are from the future. And we are to be living lives in such a way that give the, it gives the world a glimpse at what it will be like when all is made right. Or to just say it a different way, we are called to be the preview of the coming attraction. If you go to a movie theater to watch a movie, they don't just start the production with the movie. You start with previews. You see the trailers. And these little previews, if you pay attention to them, sometimes you don't, but the preview is just a tiny glimpse, a tiny sliver. It's only like two, three, four minutes long, something like that. But it gives you a little bit of a glimpse into what the movie's going to be like. It's not the whole story, but it gives you a taste of what the movie's going to be like to hopefully whet your appetite. So that by the time the movie does come out in a few months, you'll have a craving to see it. I mean, the whole goal of the, the, the production companies is, is they want you to watch that preview and say, wow, that's exciting. I can't wait. I want to be part of that. I want to see it. I want to experience that movie. This is what village church is to be. This is what you and I, this is what our families are to be, our marriages are to be. We are to be a prophetic glimpse, a preview. People ought to be able to look at us and observe us and say, this is what the world ought to be like. This is what human relationships ought to be like. I want to be a part of that. That's what we are. We are a prophetic witness to the world saying, come join us. Come be a part of where this thing's headed. We're not the whole thing. And we're, we're never going to be the whole thing this side of eternity. But we are to carry within our lives a prophecy of where this thing's headed and invite people to join us. Now, if that's not true of us, if we can't honestly say that, then we've got some changes to make, don't we? Amen. Now, let me, let, me, um, let me give you a question that I want you to think about. In fact, this might even be a good question for you to explore um, over the next few days in prayer and reflection. I want you to perhaps even just maybe write something like this down just to, be, just to explore this with the Holy Spirit in prayer this week. But here's the question. Very simple. And this question is going to get you thinking if you're not thinking already. Uh, here's what I think we ought to examine in prayer is, where is this thing headed? In other words, what will the age to come be like? When Jesus returns, what will life look like? What will relationships look like? What is the coming attraction? Here's another question that will even take you deeper into that one. What are those things that exist right now in our world, in our lives, that when Jesus returns, he's going to take these things and he's going to perfect them. He's going to restore them. You understand, there's certain things about our life and our world today that are actually basically good things. They're not always perfect, though. They don't always operate the way God would have them to be. But, but they're, they're good things that are going to continue. And when Jesus returns, he's going to take it and he's going to restore it and make it right. And then, what are those things about human life and our world today 
that are basically wrong, that are against God's agenda, that are incongruent with God's character so that when Jesus does return, he's going to take those things and do away with them and abolish them. You know, I'm thinking about things like poverty. How many of you know there's not going to be poverty in the world to come? World hunger. Things like racism. Things like unbridled greed and, amb- and unbridled ambition and selfishness. These are, these are things that when Jesus returns, he's going to abolish them. They will not be part of the world to come. And I think what, ne- what we need to do is we need to explore this constantly in prayer. God, where are you going to take this thing? What will life look like? What will the world be like when you, when you make everything right? And our job is to prayerfully anticipate that and be there now. By the power of God's spirit. Let's be there now. So that we can legitimately say to the world, we are from the future. Here's what I think. Here's what I imagine. When I, when I imagine this prayerfully, Lord, what will the age to come be like? When Jesus returns, what will human life be like under God's reign? And you know what I see? By faith, what I see is a world under God's reign that is fundamentally found upon love, peace, and holiness. That's what I see. But that's not just me making things up out of thin air. I've had some help there, you understand. I've gotten a lot of help from the prophets. You know, I'm talking about guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and and, and a lot of these minor prophets I was reading in Micah earlier this morning. I was reading in Isaiah 2. And and one of the things that that uh, that the prophets do among other things, is every so often what the prophets will do is they'll give you this inspired, this spirit-inspired vision or dream of a world made right. They'll give you this beautiful image, this beautiful vision of here's what the world ought to be. You know, Isaiah talks, Isaiah and Micah talk about they will beat their swords into plowshares. And they give us this vision, and John the Revelator talks about how uh, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. He's giving us a prophetic vision of a world made right. And they give us these poetic descriptions of what it looks like when everything is perfectly aligned under God's vision for human life in the world. And if you take their prophetic vision collectively, and you just put it all together and just describe it and distill it into one sentence, here's what it would be. What the prophets see when they look into the age to come is they see a world that is founded upon love, peace, and holiness under the reign of King Jesus. That's what they see. And our job at Village Church right now is to be on that trajectory of becoming the kind of people together by God's power Now, Pastor Ryan, how do you do that? I can't tackle that in this sermon. (laughs) We'll talk about all of that in weeks to come and months to come. But right now, we got to get our vision right. We We can't talk about how until we talk about what. And our role right now is to allow the prophets, allow the scriptures, allow Jesus to give us a heavenly vision of what human life ought to be like. That's our job as the church. Our job as the church is not to try to make the world that way. We can't do that. Come on. We're not even capable of that. Trying to make the world a place of love, peace, and holiness. That's not what our calling is. Our calling, first and foremost, is to become together 
a community founded upon love and peace and holiness under God's reign. And then what happens is we become a prophetic witness. And the culture looks at Village Church and says, that's where things are headed. I want to be a part of it. So let me, um, I'm, I'm about to wind things down here, but I want to give you a thought experiment. I told you a couple weeks ago that I like to do thought experiments, and every thought experiment I have involves a time machine. So we're going to have a time machine involved in this thought experiment, okay? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to get into our DeLorean, me and you, you and I. We get into our DeLorean, we close the doors, we step on the gas pedal, we crank it up to 88 miles an hour. And we're going to go back in time. Last time we went forward in time. We're going to go back in time today. And we're going to go back roughly around 160 years. I know that's not very far in the scope of human history, but let's crank it back to about 160 years. And we're going we're gonna to arrive in the year 1860. 1860. And we're going to land somewhere in the deep south. In fact, let's just pinpoint it. We'll, we'll, say, we'll say Montgomery, Alabama. And so we're going to find ourselves in 1860, Montgomery, Alabama. And our DeLorean is going to come to rest at the bottom of the front steps leading up First Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama. Now you understand what's going on in America at this time. What's the big issue that is been tearing America at the part, apart at the seams in 1860. Say it out loud. Slavery. We all know that. You guys are very educated here. Good. But slavery is the big divisive issue. It's the controversial issue that's threatening to tear America apart at the seams. But there is no controversy in First Baptist Church. These are people that are very convinced that... Slavery is God-ordained, as most southern churches would have been convinced. In fact, the pastor of First Baptist Church is very vocal about it. It makes its way in just, just about every one of his sermons. He finds a way to get back to that issue because it's so important to them. We've got to defend it. We've got to uphold it. We've got to preserve it. This is God-ordained, and it's the foundation of our economy. And so every sermon, this pastor vocalizes his support, not just excusing it, his support for the institution of slavery, and he uses the Bible to do so. He's able to quote scriptures and passages that he believes uh, unequivocally support slavery. So here's your job. When we land our DeLorean, we're going to drop you off, 1860, Montgomery, Alabama, at the steps of First Baptist Church. We're going to leave you there for a year. And your job is to assimilate into that church. You're going to become part of First Baptist. You're going to get to know people. You're going to learn their names. You're going to seek audience with them. You're going to look for opportunities to share your heart and your, your current Christian convictions. How many of you understand slavery is horrific sin? Okay. All right. So you're going to bring that understanding into 1860. And in your relationships with them, in your conversations, and hopefully if you get an opportunity to share, maybe even on the platform of First Baptist, you're going to publicly share your convictions. 
that slavery is a demonic, horrific sin that is anti the vision that God has for his world. And you're going to state that unequivocally. So we'll leave you there for a year if, if you last that long. <laughs> we'll pick you up in a year and we'll see how much good you were able to do. Think about it. What would you say? What would you do? How would you approach it? One of the things I hope you would just tell them and be upfront with them about is this. Folks, I am from the future. You don't know what a DeLorean is, but I just landed here in one and I'm from the year 2021. And I'm here to tell you what the future is and I want you to anticipate the future and embrace it now. And you're going to tell these folks in 1860 First Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, you're going to announce to them, folks, I know slavery is important. It undergirds your economy. It's what your entire system is founded upon. I understand how much this is going to require you to change, but you just need to know that this is a grave sin and that it will not be part of the future. I'm telling you this with authority. It will not last. It won't even last a few years. This is not where this thing's headed. And it's going to cost you buckets of blood. Hundreds of thousands of lives. Some people that you know and love in your family are going to lose their lives to the worst war that America's ever experienced. And I need you to know that. And I want you to hear from the perspective of history in the future. All of America in 2021, except for a few knuckleheads and extremists, but virtually unanimously, uh, the nation of the future will look back on this period of American history and this institution of slavery, and we will look upon it with deep national shame and regret. And the future church of America, your great-great-grandkids, will look back upon your decision to support slavery and stand for slavery, and they will reflect upon it with deep embarrassment. And humiliation. I am from the future. I am telling you where the future is going. I am pleading with you, anticipate the future and embrace it now. And if you'll do that, you'll save some lives and you'll save your dignity in the eyes of history. Now you understand when you announce this, when you tell them this, when you, when you plead with them, most of them will not believe you. Even if you manage to convince them that you're from the future, Let's just take that for granted. They believe that. They're not going to believe you and they're going to tell you that you're just trying to meddle with their lives. They'll say things like, how dare you tell us we're not following Jesus in this matter? How dare you say that, that this is not what Scripture teaches us? They will pull out Scriptures. They will pull out passages that will seem to support what they're saying in their current way of life. And they're going to push back at the very least with their words. And you'll respond and you'll say things, folks, I, I know your arguments. I know the passages. I can quote them for you. I understand what you have to say. I'm just telling you that this institution that you have built your society upon, it is demonically inspired. It is wrong. It is not congruent with God's vision for the world. And even though you think this is the way things have to be, I'm telling you from history's perspective, we're going to look back and we're going to say, this is the way things must not be and must never be again. I'm pleading with you, rethink your lives. You know what you're actually telling them, not so, in so many words? You're telling them this, repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what you're telling them. But again, most of them won't believe you. But, they, but it's not that they're not going to believe you because they don't believe time travel is possible. They won't believe you on moral grounds. They won't believe you because they don't want to believe you. Because they're firmly invested in the status quo. Now here's the irony. If you walk out of First Baptist Church, 1860 Montgomery, Alabama, if you walk out of that church and go across the street or wherever and you find the nearest black church and you share this announcement with them, they're going to love it. They're going to eat it up. They're going to embrace it wholeheartedly. Which maybe helps us understand how people would have initially heard Jesus' Beatitudes. I mean, you're going to see when we get to the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are not these nice little quaint statements that everybody loves and agrees with. When you understand the Beatitudes as they are, they are deeply counterintuitive. And for some people, they're very threatening. Jesus announces on this hill in front of perhaps thousands of people from every walk of life. He says things like, as Luke has it, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. As Matthew records it, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, those who are mourning, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for things to be made right. There would have been in that crowd many people who would have said, preach it, brother. Yes, they would have seen it as good news. But I promise you there would have been other people in that population that would have heard those beatitudes and said, this man is a threat. We got to get rid of him. Which helps us, by the way, understand the last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You understand, if you, if you stand behind the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, 1860, and you announce to them, this institution of slavery is demonically inspired, it is evil, it is wrong, rethink it. You understand you're going to have some persecution? I mean, you're, you're not going to last very long. You're going to have to skip town at some point. But perhaps there may be, who knows, a handful of people who are going to receive your prophetic witness from the future, and they will take it to heart, and they will rethink everything. See, this is what we, the church, are to be right here, right now. We're not called to be relevant. We're not called to be effective or successful. We're called to be faithful to Christ's vision for what the world ought to be like. We, of all people, we are from the future. We belong to the age to come. We are called to properly perceive and then embody that vision so that we can be a prophetic witness to the world around us. This is where things are headed. Come and belong to this age with us. In the present world that is motivated by a lust for money and sex and power. I think all of us see that. You don't drive around Los Angeles for very long without realizing this is a world founded upon the lust for money, sex, and power. But in the midst of that darkness, we're called to carry the light of Jesus Christ that will lead us to a world that is founded upon love and peace and holiness. We're not called to make the world that way. We're not called to make the world a place of love. We're not capable of that. See, that's the fool's, fool's errand of the Beatles. The Beatles toured around singing, All you need is love. 
And then they broke up. It's a fool's errand. But what we are called to be, we're called to be the church that embodies a community of people founded around love. That's what you see in Acts chapter 2 when the church explodes onto the scene and you read about these people who are so full of God's spirit. And what does John tell us, 1 John 4, 8? God is love. To be full of the spirit is to be full of love. It's going to cause you to be full of love. I've met people who claim to be full of the spirit and they're full of something else that I can't say. God is love. If we're full of God's spirit, and this is what we see in the early church, they're so full of the spirit of God, they're just overflowing with love for one another to the point where they're, they're caring for one another in radical ways. They're sharing with one another. If anybody in their community, in their church has a need, it's the church that stands up and makes sure that person has what they need. But it's not because there's a program or institution making them do it. It's not because there's a set of laws coercing them to do it. It's because they're so full of God's spirit. They can't help but be inspired to walk in love for one another. And that is what caused the first century world to look at the first century church and say, these people have found something. They've tapped into something. And you remember Jesus, I'm bringing it in for landing right here. This is it. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of Jews from all around the world in front of him. And you remember Peter's statement? I think we've, we, we need to reflect on what he says here. He says, save yourselves from something. What does he say? Does he say, save yourselves from hell? No. Save yourselves from this perverse and crooked generation. In other words, he's telling them, you guys are stuck in the present age. This is the way you're thinking, the way you're living. You're stuck in this current broken age. And I want to see you saved out of that into the kingdom to come. I'm inviting you to leave this current age and come with me to belong to the future, to where this thing's headed. Let's, let's be there now. And thereby, you're going to experience some persecution with me. But together, we will bear witness to a beautiful world remade under the authority of King Jesus. That's what Village Church exists for. We're not just here to learn Bible stories and sing nice songs and pray nice prayers. I mean, I'm fine with all of that. But the actual, the actual purpose for why we exist is together we are becoming the kinds of people that will be a prophetic witness to Los Angeles and the world around us. This is where God's going to take this thing. This is what human interaction is going to look like. Come see what's happening at Village Church. We belong to the future. Come belong to the future with us. And that's the kind of Christianity that actually changes the world. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.